those of you who were able to be a part of it, wasn't Christmas Eve service awesome this year? We had such a fun time. This place was packed with um, our church and our sister church that um, we actually um, came out of, uh, Community of Faith Christian Fellowship in Brighton, and then a lot of friends from other churches and family. It was a fantastic time. I want to I honor my wife, Laura, for pulling that service together. She did a fantastic job. And... Um, all of the musicians, the Deatons and different ones, Aaron Cook, and all of you guys who pulled together the music part of it was fantastic. Jana with the children, what a wonderful, wonderful time. It, it totally set Christmas Eve and our time at home in the right perspective and focus as we entered into a time of remembering our Savior's birth. You know, we're always... Um, Always very aware of the fact that Christmas season is a tradition in Advent. We have our Advent candles lit here as we have exited from that time of Advent where we are remembering the coming of our Savior to this Sunday where we remember that not only did Christ come, that he was born, but he was born for the purpose of living a perfect and sinless life so that he could die on our behalf for our sins, our transgressions, that which separates us from um, a righteous, holy God, that Jesus and God, from the beginning of time, we looked at John 1, looked at how that from the very beginning of time there was a plan, a plan that, as we know it on, on the human scale of things, a plan for Christ to come to this world, um, not just to be a cute baby in a manger, not just to be um, uh, some kind of religious Um, icon that we look back at, but a living God who was a living man who lived a perfect and sinless life to be a holy and perfect sacrifice for us um, on the cross. So we say, say that he was born to die, to die for our sins, to die for, um, uh, the punishment that we deserve in our rebellion, our sinfulness. Jesus took that upon himself on the cross, but he d- didn't just die, right? We, we, we celebrate a little bit later in the year, um, formally, but hopefully we celebrate it every day of our lives, that he's not just a dead man, a great scholar, a wonderful um, saint who had an incredible teaching ministry and performed some miracles, but he rose from the grave. And so he not only was born to die, but he died to rise right? And we also know in our history and in, 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 the, in the scripture that he not only rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death, conquering the death that um, as humans, we, if we don't have a perspective of who Christ is, might live in fear of. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the fear of death um, through his resurrection, and he extended to us a hope, a hope of an abundant life here on earth and a hope with him says that 40 days after he died, he rose, he ascended, so he, died, he rose to ascend, and then he ascended to heaven, and it says that he sits at the right hand of the Father, um, interceding for us and anticipating the day of his return. And today, in this Advent season, we celebrate the return of Christ, that he's not just um, a distant memory. He's not just a man who died. He rose. He's not just one who ascended into heaven and is now distant and apart from us, but that he not only comes to live in us when we give our hearts to, and lives to him, but there is a literal time when Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. 
this, this Advent Sunday, we will talk about the return of Christ. I want to frame it, and actually, um, as we were praying for the, for the service this morning, this, this illustration was shared that I, I decided in it to, to, to morph into my story. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you um, my story and then kind of the picture that was presented this morning as we were praying. But I um, fell in love with a beautiful young lady. Um, one time, and it is the, the beautiful young lady that I'm married to, so I'm not going to be talking about another woman this morning. But I fell in love with a beautiful young lady some 21 years ago, and um, we um, dated and we got engaged, and we weren't incredibly wise in the timing of our engagement, or at least I wasn't thinking what the ramifications of our engagement would be because my wife at the time was involved in a discipleship training school, very similar to the one that my daughter is is participating in right now back in Texas. Um, and the end of that training school um, um, year is an overseas trip. And at that time of, 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 of our church's journey, our movement's journey, the trip was three months long or two and a half months long. And so I proposed to my wife in April. Um, we kissed for the very first time, which that was a glorious kiss. Um, and then I kissed her goodbye and put her on a plane for two and a half months. I can tell you that when I drove down uh, to the airport with her and she walked across, she left my arms, Aaron, you'll remember this because you're newly married, you can, you'll experience this emotion right now, and when she left, I was so disoriented. I was just like, what have I done? I have just said goodbye to my wife-to-be for two and a half eternal months. And it was, I, I was so distraught that um, it was a three-hour drive to the airport. I was so distraught that I got lost, and it took me five hours to get back home. I went the wrong direction because I was so disoriented. Now, I can say that I said goodbye to her, but I can tell you that I counted every day um, with great anticipation for the return of Laura Davis. She was not, not, not yet a Richmond but I did write her name, um, Laura Davis Richmond, at times. But I, I, I anticipated the return of my bride. Um, I, 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 people used to make fun of me. I, they said, you know, you were, I was a youth pastor at the time. They said, Sean, you are no good until Laura gets back. We love you, but you are not doing a great job. I, I just was distracted. I was eager for, for Laura's return. And when, um, um, when she came back, um, it was a glorious day um, of great celebration, of great uh, rejoicing. And I remember um, at that time, you could look through, at this airport, you could look through the glass, and the plane um, landed, I don't know, uh, landed in where she had to get down and walk, walk across a gate. And when I, I could see her walking through the gate, and when I saw her coming, I was like, oh my gosh, there was this built up of emotion of I get to be back with my bride-to-be. I do believe that as we anticipate the Lord's return, that this is, this is a good image, this is a good illustration of, uh, in, in some measure, what it can be like for us who anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. That as we get to know Him here on earth, as we uh, experience, uh, Aaron started off the service this morning with the thought, Another opportunity for us to get to know the love of God and to worship the God of our Savior. 
Um, as we get to know this Jesus on this earth, it should increase our, our longing, our anticipation, our desire to not just know him in part, but to see him face to face. Um, the illustration that was shared this morning as I framed the beginning of this message is one that Randy Alcorn shares in his book, Heaven, of which I have not read. It's sat on my, book, my bookshelf to read, and um, Bree was sharing this illustration this morning. I thought, I need to read this. But he, he, and We're not going to talk a lot about heaven today. That might be another message at another point. So I'm not going to describe to you all of the aspects of what we have to look forward to in heaven But I can say that the most important thing that we get to look forward to in heaven is God himself, is Jesus himself. Randy, uh, as best as I can understand it from the illustration that Bree shared with, with us, is that Randy gives the illustration of, wouldn't it be silly if we were to get on an airplane, much, to the, much in the same way that Lara got on an airplane coming back to meet me, wouldn't it be silly if we got on an airplane in anticipation of meeting um, Jesus, of, of, of getting to the ultimate destination. If we got on an airplane and we pulled the shade down and we put a painting in the window and we put up couches and we had a lamp and we set up the airplane as if this is our living, this is our destination. Wouldn't it be weird if we got on an airplane as if we, the, the airplane itself was the place that we were longing to get onto? We don't get on airplanes as if they are our destination. We get on airplanes as if they are taking us to our destination. And we are here on this planet. We are here living. And many of us in this room have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've come in contact with the Savior who at the end of time we're going to be able to see face to face. And we, we live sometimes as if this is our destination. This airplane that we are living on. When this airplane is moving us towards our ultimate destination. To be with our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have questions, many of us, all of us I would assume, at some point or often even now. Questions like, when is he coming back? What's it going to be like when Jesus returns? We have questions about, what's it going to be like on the other side of this world? What's it going to be like in heaven? What's going to happen to me when I die? Questions that both believers and I believe unbelievers alike ponder. Some with fear and trepidation. Some with joyful anticipation or wonder. I want us to look this morning at a set of scripture. And we're not going to, we're not going to read all of it. But I'm going to put it before you for you to read later. Um, the context of which is Christ's return. Matthew, verse, Matthew chapter 24 in 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up. I'm, I'm not going to put, um, I'm going to put some of the passages of Scripture up on the screen, you, but you for sure would, I think it would be good for you to open up your Bible and look at this section of Scripture as you kind of see the titles of the different parables and stories that we're looking at. But the context of this passage of Scripture is Jesus um, talking about the days of his return, how we should prepare um, what, what, how we should get ready, what it will be like um, when he comes back. Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, he sits on the Mount Olives and discusses his return. It's very interesting that even he sits in this 
specific place, but it's because it's from this place that he ascends into heaven, and the scripture says it's at this place that he will return, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the Mount of Olives, um, if you, as you sit on the Mount of Olives, you can look um, across the valley and you can see um, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and so it's from this place of looking at that place of uh, present-day worship in his time, the the literal temple that's been built to be a place to worship God, knowing that he himself is the living um, temple, the living place of salvation, and that we, as we embark on a relationship with him, as we have um, a, a saving relationship with him, that we become the very temple of God that he lives in, and he's looking and he's saying, there is coming a day when I'm going to return. We see these, these uh, two chapters talking about um, this readiness, talking about this um, figuring out of when he's going to come and whether or not that's a part of what we should be doing. This, this, these parables that talk about where, uh, how we should be living and in, in one sense um, what our hearts should look like or what our attitude should be in the anticipation of his return and, and what it will look like when he does return um, to judge those who know him and those who don't. I want to look specifically at one of these parables um, that's right in the middle of this section um, in in regards to this concept of being ready. Um, uh, But before we go there, just uh, chapter 24, verses 45 through 51, um, explain um, this. We have here a master leaving and leaving his two servants and, and and the servants responding in different ways. Um, when the master leaves the servant in charge during his absence, he does not expect to find him waiting at the door when he returns. It's not this sense of, I'm just going to lay down everything if Christ is coming back and I've got to be ready because I don't know when he's coming back. It's not that we just kind of sit in, in prayer and meditation and anticipation and not doing anything when he returns. But the sense is, is that when he returns, he finds us about the tasks that he left us to do. That we are doing, we are living, we are engaging in the kind of life that Christ lived here on earth, that we as his representatives um, are living likewise as. And he returns um, having seen his servants hopefully um, living up to the trust that he left them with, with his, his estate, his, his, his operations. Um, neither one of these two servants in verses 41, 45 through 51 knew when he was going to return. But when the difference is what he finds them doing when he returns. Our readiness for, com- for the coming of Jesus, our readiness is not in excited speculation of when he comes, but in faithful stewardship. Readiness is the theme of chapters 24 and 25. So let's look at Matthew 25, 1 through 13 as it talks about readiness. And we'll read this passage of Scripture together. It's a parable. At the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and all 
And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they went while they went on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. We actually talked about this wedding um, setting last week when we talked about um, Mary and Joseph, we talked about this cultural context of being betrothed to someone but not yet having been married. And there is a time of waiting. And so what we have in this parable is a picture of what that wedding event would look like. The bride and groom separated in different houses. The, the bride being prepared over a period of time um, for the, the consummation of her of her marriage with her groom, the groom for a period of time preparing and raising the resources and getting everything ready to go and, and to um, be, betro- uh, be married to his bride. And we have this, this picture of this anticipation of the bridegroom coming and then a procession of the bride to her groom's house. We have some supplies that we see in this parable as well. We see lamps. Um, what probably would have been more like from in the context of that day, not what we consider lamps, but more like torches. Um, the ones with the rags on the end of them that would be dipped in oil and set aflame, and when they would dry out, they would carry a pouch or some kind of vessel oil container along with them that they could re-oil the, lamp, the, the torch, to keep it burning. So that's the imagery that we have here. And then we have the bridesmaids. We have ten bridesmaids. Um, and, and in one sense, these bridesmaids are indistinguishable. They're ten bridesmaids ready um, to be a part of the procession to lead um, the bride uh, to the groom or be a part of the procession of the bride with her groom. But we do see in this verse of Scripture that there's something very different. And the difference is those who had oil and those who did not. Those who were ready and those who were not. Those who were prudent in the Greek and those who were foolish or stupid. It may not be clear as we look at this passage of Scripture on the outside any difference from these these ten but we know in their preparation, in what they were called or charged to do, that some were ready and some were not. If we, if we, make the, um, if we take the analogy into our own present situation, um, one Bible commentator said it this way, William Art, he said, There is not a more grand or more beautiful spectacle on earth than a great assembly reverently worshiping God together. If these, he's taking the analogy that these women represent us or represent the church. No line visible to human eye divides into two parts the goodly company, yet the goodly company is divided into two parts. The Lord reads our character. 
he mar- and he marks our place. The Lord knows them that are his and them that are not his, even in every assembly of worshipers. And there's this sense in this passage of Scripture that what God is saying, or what Jesus is saying, and he also, he also goes into another parable at the end of chapter 25 and talks about the goats and the sheep being separated. There's a sense in this whole two chapters of conversation that Jesus is saying that part of being ready or the readiness that we have is what has already happened or what happens within us to prepare us to be ready. I want to, I'm going to highlight this a little bit later so that we don't mistake what looks like the readiness of doing things versus having already had something happen in us. And I think what's significant in this passage of Scripture as we talk about what is going to happen when the Lord returns, will I be ready for the Lord's return is what makes us ready. And I think when we look at this analogy and we look at the context of all of these parables, what makes us ready is our relationship with the bridegroom or our relationship with God himself. Do we have oil for our lamps? That oil, symbolically within Scripture, is is often referred to as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's Life within us. I think it's very clear what Jesus is saying here is in order to be ready when the bridegroom returns, we have to be ones that the bridegroom knows. We have to be known by him. Those who came without oil knocked on the door and he says, go away, I don't even know you. Those who are in celebrating at the the ceremony of the bridegroom were those whose oil was with them. Whose relationship, who's known, who's, who are known by the bridegroom. Do you have oil? Do you have oil in your pouch? Is oil present in your life? Is the Spirit of God fully in you? As we anticipate the Lord's return, the biggest question that the world has is, will I be ready? The biggest question that we should have in this room is, will I be ready? And you're saying, well, Sean, you're preaching to the church. I'm just preaching the word of God. God knows who the church is. I don't. I can anticipate, the scripture says, by walking with you and knowing the fruit that you bear in your life, that there is a good chance that you're a child of God. But in these passages of Scripture, and in other Scriptures throughout the Bible, it makes it very clear that it is not I who judges whether you know God or not. It's God Himself that either knows you or doesn't know you. And as we talk about Christ's return, it would be remiss of me as a pastor if I didn't say that the very most important thing that we should evaluate as people sitting in the presence of God, worshiping and singing songs, is not necessarily, although it's an outworking of our life, not necessarily what we are doing, how we are worshiping, what we are saying, but do we have oil in our lamps? Do we know God? Does God know us? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5, there are some people who have a form of godliness, but without His power. This is not necessarily ever a popular message to talk about. 
But it is what Christ is saying here in this passage passage of Scripture. Christ talks a lot about it. His kingdom on earth would grow both wheat and tares. He warned they would look so much alike that we are not to pull out the tares lest we pull out the wheat with the tares, that we are not the ones to be the judging or the discerning, but that he is. I said again, Matthew 25, and the sheeps and goats that you see in the last parable in that section. Some of us will be deceived by thinking that everything is okay because we're involved in church, because we do good things. But God is saying, what's going on on the inside? What's happened in your heart? What have you done with Jesus, the bridegroom? That's what matters. In this parable, they fall asleep. And I don't think that the falling asleep is a falling asleep. All ten of them fall asleep, and we know that five are prepared and five are not. I think that at times we can fall asleep in preparation or um, being unprepared. Anybody remember taking tests in school or being prepared for school? There was a restful sleep and there was an anxious sleep. Anybody know those feelings? Anybody anybody connect with that recurring dream, the dream of the locker that won't open, the test that i got to take that I didn't prepare for? I don't know why I still have those dreams. I haven't prepared for my algebra test. I don't even know algebra. Who is that teacher? I've never met him before. I've got a test. We can walk in the rest, in a sense, in the sleep of life, being prepared for his return. Or we can live without sleep, so to speak. Restless, anxious for what we do not know. And all of that hinges on the peace that we receive from knowing Christ or not. If you are um, at unrest with Christ's return, if you are at unrest with the meeting of your Savior, if, if, if it is either in His returning or something that's much more natural for us to think about in us dying and meeting Him, that peace that we look for only comes through an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And when we acknowledge and believe and put our faith and trust in Him, and the Scripture says that He comes and makes His life in us, He lives in us, John 15, His home is in our heart, our home is in Him. We are at home together that when we find that home with Jesus, only through faith in Jesus, we know both through the Word of God and experientially that a peace that surpasses our understanding comes and resides within us so that we can, in anticipation, face our Maker whenever that time comes. Some say, I'm a good person. I've done good things. It does not matter what we can say of our lives if we have not Jesus in our hearts. Verse 6, at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Midnight comes unexpectedly, doesn't it? Midnight in that day was many hours after the sun had gone down, many hours into what would have been sleep. In the middle of the night is probably the better way for us to read it. At that point when you are at your least wits about you, when you are at your most unprepared, at your place where there's nothing that you could do to be ready. (laughs) What? I'm here. Is when Christ comes to evaluate your life. I think that that's significant, don't you? I think that it's significant that at midnight in this parable he comes because that is the place where we can't do anything to be ready ourselves. 
We're either ready or not. Ready or not, we used to say, hide and go see, here I come. God's saying to us that it's the readiness of knowing Christ that prepares us for a restful anticipation. Not a, not a and we'll see here in just a minute, not an a, um, uh, activity-less anticipation, but a restful anticipation. Verses 7 through 12. Um, then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. They go, they, um, the foolish ones don't have the oil. They go off looking. The others go with the bridegroom, and the door is shut. Truly, I don't know you. There was not enough oil for both of them. It appears in this passage of Scripture that the ladies are selfish, but they're not selfish. They just have the oil that God has given them, and they can't give the oil that it's not theirs to give. The only one that can give the oil is the one who makes the oil, who is the oil. The only, only person that can save you is God himself. Uh, there's the old, um, um, the old phrase, um, uh, there are no grandparents. You know, there's no grandchildren, excuse me, in heaven, right? I'm not getting to heaven off of my parents' faith or my grandparents' faith. My, my entrance into heaven is by my faith alone. It's not through being a part of a wonderful church. It's not being Catholic or Protestant. It's not, it's not um, any association that I have with good people. I've got great friends who are believers. I hang out with believers all the time. It, none of these things put oil into our lives. But oil comes into our life through a surrender and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Deep down, we know if we know him or if we don't, don't we? Is there oil? In your lamp, I remember when I was a kid, um, um, because um, I didn't have a great understanding of this truth, there would be times in a service like this where the very first question I would ask once the preacher got rolling on this topic was, Lord, am I saved? Do I really know you? And it might be true in this room that you as a believer, as a known believer in the congregation, Everybody says, well, he or she's a believer. But in your heart, you're going, do I really know you? Do I really know you, God? I want to know you. Do I know you? I really, I really want to be. If you, I always felt comfort, comforted by the Holy Spirit and those that I would talk to around me at those ages is, is with, this, with this truth. Sean, if you are really concerned about whether or not you're known by God and you want to know God, you're okay. Be at rest. Your desire to know him your faith, in put, your faith and trust in believing in him is what settles the deal for all of us. It's what secures our salvation. God is looking for your faith, your trust, your, your submission to him. And in that place of trust and submission, God does the work of saving. God does the work of securing. God does the work of invitation. God does the work of blessing. God is the one that is keeping you in that place of peace. Let go. Don't worry. Trust in God and let God's life transform you. It's a free gift. It's not, it does not come with work. But there is a price, and Christ paid for it, right? There's a price for your salvation, and Christ paid for it on the cross. The gift is free for you and I. The only cost that we have, our full life surrendered to him. God, anything you want to do in my life, do it. Everything that I am, you have. 
whatever you desire for me. God, I want that to be my desire. Can you imagine the sheer terror, just to finish this parable, can you imagine the sheer terror of those five virgins who could not get through that door? When they realized it was too late. I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to people about Jesus and their answer to my question of, do, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Or maybe I'd ask this question, are you, in a, are you ready to receive what Christ has done for you? Are you willing to allow your life to be consumed into His? Are you willing for Jesus to take control of your life? And their response is, I'm not quite ready. I'm not sure if I'm ready yet. And in that answer, there's a lot of backstory or there's a lot of things they might be saying. Sometimes they're saying, I'm too sinful, I need to clean myself up, of which I'd say, you're perfectly in place for a Savior then. Those who don't need a doctor are the ones who don't find one. But all of us who need doctors, all of us who are stained by our own rebellion and sin and our ugliness, and that's who Jesus came to save. Me, you, ugly, despicable sinners. Yeah, I just called you an ugly, despicable sinner, and I love you. And so does God. It's the ones who don't need a Savior, who have cleaned themselves up for God, who are all good and righteous, who are like the rich young ruler who said, I've done everything good, now what else? It's those that have a hard time finding the Savior. I'm not quite ready because maybe I have a little bit more life I want to live before I have to go into that boring Christian life that I think it is. You know, I want to live a little, Pastor. I'm not quite ready. Really? You want to live a little for what? Anybody in here ever lived a little? What does lived a little really look like? It looks like discouragement, despair, great night and terrible week. It looks like broken promises. It looks like loneliness and depression. It looks like hopelessness. Do we really want to live a little? And maybe live to the point where the door is shut. And we don't have an opportunity. Because the scripture says that when Christ returns... That's when the door shuts. It's, it's, we can't like wait and go, uh, oh, 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 he's coming through the clouds, I believe. At the point of his return, the door is shut. The time is over. He's looking for faith now in anticipation of his return. I'm just not ready. Yes, you are. Let God come in. Keep watch. Be ready. Live in anticipation. Not just ready, but secure in the Father's love. Secure that God loves you more than you can imagine. And the last thought I want to leave as Aaron and the band come on up is this. For the longest time as a believer, um, because I didn't know what heaven was like, because I was still just understanding who Jesus was like, because I was very much more aware of the sinfulness and what I wasn't like as a believer. I didn't have such a great anticipation of going to heaven or Christ returning because I was still consumed with what is he going to think of me when he comes back. I'm not living up to the standard that I feel like I want to be living up to when He comes. I believe in Him, I trust Him, but God, I'm not, I'm not ready for You to return as a believer because I want to be a better believer when You come back. 
And then I started to understand at a deeper level the love of the Father and how much he loves me even in my weak estate. How much he understands my brokenness. How much he understands my struggle against sin and my desire to live for him. And how much as a father, he looks forward to getting back to me. That's what I want you to hear. He's not coming back going, all right, ready or not, here I come. I can't wait to judge you. I can't wait to put you in your place. I can't wait to put all of your works in front of me in this pile and put that torch to it and see what's left. Can't wait to see how much of a loser you've been, Sean. Saved by the skin of your teeth, Sean. Boy, do you owe me, Sean. No, he's like the prodigal father. He's like the father that is sad when I mess up, longs for the intimacy of my friendship and presence, and is so tickled pink when I turn around the corner and I'm coming, coming towards him. I believe that Jesus wants us to eagerly anticipate how awesome it will be to be with our father, our friend, as I believe he's sitting on the edge of his seat going, Dad, is it time yet? Do I get to come back? Do we get to start the next journey of our existence together with my family and we're going to go for eternity and have some great times? Do I get to come back yet? Do I get to come back and be with my family? That's who we're running into and who's running into us as we worship. Would you stand up with